Would you please turn in your Bibles uh, with me to Psalm 12? Psalm 12. The Psalm of David is a cry for help. As we can see from the very first word of verse 1, um, the ESV has it as save, which is clunky, I think. Um, every other version I checked translated the Hebrew as help, which captures the idea more clearly, I think. So keep that in mind as I read Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and the double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. For the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us and for using it to change us. We pray that you would do that very thing right now, that you would use your living word by your spirit to change us, to cause us to trust you like David in this psalm, even when it looks as there, though there are no righteous ones left. We pray that you would use your word to show us your holy character and your glory. We pray that as you help us see these things, that you would cause us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray that as a result, we would love you more. We pray that you would prepare our hearts to learn and love every word you have given us, and that we would submit to and be obedient to it as you give us understanding. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen me as I preach, that I would only preach truth. I pray that you would use these words offered in worship to draw your people to yourself. For your glory and our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. King David, the anointed king of Israel, the hand-picked shepherd ruler of God's people spent a remarkable amount of time in his life running from one person or another who wanted him dead. He ran from Saul as a young man and from his own son Absalom as an old man. He also spent a bunch of time in the, kings of, in the courts of kings, first with uh, king, Saul, king Saul and then with the Philistine king Achish and then in his own kingdom, of course. While we don't have a time stamp for this psalm, like, we have, like we've had for some others, when we look at David's life, we see that he would have had lots of opportunity to see the kinds of things that are described here in Psalm 12. Basically, from the time that he was anointed as king by Samuel and to his death, he was under some kind of attack. He was either under attack from those outside the kingdom of Israel or from those inside the kingdom, um, from both inside and outside his family. The Philistines tried to kill him, Saul tried to kill him, and two of his own sons tried to claim the throne while he was still alive. It's easy then to imagine a bunch of times when David could have written this psalm, but this is a psalm of lament, a psalm of sorrow over the state of righteousness, of godliness in the land. There is none, is what David is saying. This psalm could have been written today, and in a way that should be comforting. 
Since Adam sinned in Genesis 3, mankind has been inventing new ways to sin, or at least new ways to express sin. So why did I say it could be comfort? It should be comforting for uh, the fact that this psalm could have been written today. The reason is, um, well, there are two. One is God is faithful to his people to the uttermost, and, we'll st- and we are still here. And the second is God saves sinners. Even when it looks as though everything is going wrong, even if it looks as though sinners are abounding and the godly are decreasing, God saves sinners. Every generation tends to think that the world is worse than it has ever been, and if it gets any worse out there, everything's going to come crashing down and there will be no coming back from it. Someone recently told me about a journal that was found in an old trunk or something of an old man from the early 1900s. Um, In it, the man described holding his newborn grandson and wondering how there was any way there would be a world for the baby in his arms to grow up in. Things were so bad and everything, everything seemed hopeless and it was hard for him to imagine a scenario in which the baby would have any kind of hope for a future. Now, I don't know if the man who wrote the journal or not was a Christian, uh, but if he wasn't, it sets up a a nice contrast. If you ask a non-Christian what makes the time we live in bad, you'll get, or you should get, a very different answer than if you asked a Christian. Non-Christians will tell you that poverty and disease and war and a bad economy make for bad times. Now, to, to be clear, those are decidedly bad things. But as Christians, our view of bad times should be shaped by Scripture. Paul tells us and tells Timothy and us in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It is sin and its fruits that should truly concern us. And this sin and its fruits should cause us to reflexively turn to God in the way that David does here. David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can clearly see what's going on in the wickedness around him. And in Psalm 12, he shows us that there is a battle of words happening all the time. This is the same battle that's been ongoing since Genesis 3. It is a battle between the words of God and the words of the serpent. The words of life that are more precious than anything in the world and the words of death whose goal is to throw off the authority of him who created all things with a word. So when it seems as though the number of those opposing God and his people is overwhelming, what does David do? He turns to the only one who can actually help. It's helpful to notice that even in the most desperate psalms of lament, the psalmist still turns to God. And so long as you can turn to God and ask for help, no situation is hopeless. Let's look at at verse 1 of Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. David calls out for help. Like a child in the dark who can't see what's going on, but knows that mom and dad will hear them, and if they cry, he calls for help. Help, it's dark. I can't see anything at all. There are no godly people left. There are only evil ones, and they're everywhere. The wicked are running rampant, and there's no end in sight. Everywhere David looks, he sees people following the prince of the power of the air. 
living according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He sees them following the passions of their flesh. Everyone David can see seemed to be following their father, the devil, and doing his will, following his character, as Jesus said in John 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We'll see the outworking of this in the next few verses, but for now the fact is that the righteous have disappeared. This isn't by chance. This isn't, this isn't an accident. The godly have disappeared because the wicked, by their lies, have created an environment that either suppresses godliness or seduces people into wickedness, or both. This is a societal problem that starts at the top with those who are leaders of the people. When the leaders of a people turn to wickedness, to lying, to flattery, to deception, and boasting, it will not be long before the rest of the people follow. But even in this, God is gracious. David feels alone. He feels as though the sun, the sun has set and won't ever come up again. But is David truly alone? Are there no righteous at all? No, he is not alone. And we know this for two reasons. David is calling out to the Lord and two, God keeps a people for himself. A few hundred years after David, another servant of God felt the same way. Elijah told the Lord, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. They seek my life to take it away. When he said this, Elijah has just faced down 450 prophets of Baal by himself. And then he ran from the wicked Queen Jezebel who was looking to kill him. And now he felt totally alone. The Lord, though, answers him and promises him a helper named Elisha. And then he tells him that there are 7,000 righteous left in Israel, those whom the Lord kept for himself. David's experience and Elijah's experience are not unique. For those who remain faithful to God in the midst of the wickedness of the world, a time will come when you feel alone. A time will come when you feel as though you are the only one left who is not giving in to the unrighteousness around you. Do not be discouraged by this. Do not despair. God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is risen. Turn to him and he will hear you. David calls upon God for help in his trouble. And even as he does this, he is helped. He is helped because he is no longer totally focused on the men around him. Men are nowhere to, or no place to turn in times of trouble. They're weak and fickle and sinful. God, however, is all-powerful and unchanging and holy. As Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Calvin said we ought to be fully persuaded of this, that the greater of the confusion of things in this world is God is so much the readier to aid and succor his people. And that is, it is then the most proper season for him to interpose his assistance. In other words, the worse the situation, the more ready God is to help. Even as the world around us looks bad, because it is, we must not despair. We must instead turn to God for help. David now describes how the wickedness is manifesting itself and why it has chased all the godly from the scene. Remember, this is a war of words, the words of wicked men against the word of the Lord. Verse 2 says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. 
This is the ammunition of the wicked, lying and flattering and deception and boasting. It begins at the top and trickles down to the masses. This is the side of the wicked drawing up the battle lines. But in their war against God and his people, it is every man for himself. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Everyone lies all the time. Just think about the obvious lies we are being told by many right now. Lies that go past the plausible and into the insane. Lies like men can have babies, or abortion is health care, or a woman is anyone who decides to be one. But this lying doesn't only mean to tell an untruth, it also means to tell a partial truth or to speak vain, empty words. In an unrighteous society, truth distorting and vain words become the primary way that people, that people speak. And when outright lies aren't being told, vain speech dominates. Spend five minutes on the internet and you'll see what I mean. It is mostly empty words like Jude says. There are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. There is no life, no truth in these words, and their only purpose is to gain power through any means necessary. Flattery, then, is another form of lying. It is vain speech's cousin. Empty talk, or words for words' sake, are, are either, for the, either because the speaker thinks very highly of himself or because he wants others to think highly of him. Flattery then tries to puff up the hearer. So vain speech is for the speaker, flattery is for the hearer. To make him think that people think highly of him. That was a lot of hymns. People flatter others for bad purposes, to get something out of them, to deceive them or, or, or cheat them. The double-hearted know this. Spurgeon says, he who puffs up another's heart has nothing better than wind in his own. If a man extols me to my face, he only shows me one side of his heart, and the other is black with contempt for me, or, with, or foul with intent to cheat me. <clears throat> Flattery is the sign of the tavern, where duplicity is the host. This should be expected. When we stop being faithful to God, we should not expect faithfulness to one another. When the faithful have vanished from among the children of men, it follows then that self-interest will outpace the conscience when men deal with one another. And deceit will grow until you can no longer trust anyone further than you can throw him. What we see here is the children of the devil are growing up to be just like their father. They mix lies with bad intentions. And everything they touch is corrupted to the point that no one knows who to trust or to believe. And then chaos reigns. Verse 3 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, and those who say, With our tongue we will prevail. With our, our, our lips are with us, who is master over us. We see here more, more of the weapons um, that the wicked use, and, and what David asked the Lord to do is stop the wicked from doing these things. We, he asked the Lord to rescue his people in this war of words by stopping the words of the wicked. Cut off their flattering lips. Stop their boasting tongues, O oh Lord, end their rebellion. The wicked are trying to create their own reality. Look at their boast. With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? They're saying in essence, in essence that they can speak their own reality into existence. Their tongues have the power, and their tongues have power, and their lips will prevail. It is, if David feels as though the sun has set on godliness... The wicked here think that they can keep the world from turning and the sun from rising merely by speaking their desires into reality. Do you see how they're trying to replace God? 
This is the epitome of the line from the, the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Do you see how current this is? Do you see how absolutely relevant this passage written 3,000 years ago is to the most modern of men? This shows us that Solomon was right when he said there's no, nothing new under the sun. This kind of rebellion wasn't even new in David's day. The psalm could have been written by Moses in the court of Pharaoh, or it could have been written by Noah in the midst of the wickedness before the flood. Or it could have been written in Genesis 3 when the words of God were rejected in favor of the words of a snake. And since that rejection of God's word, the battle has been ongoing between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Matthew Henry says of the offspring, that the offspring of the serpent have a proud conceit of themselves and a confidence in themselves as if the point were indeed gained by eating the forbidden fruit. And they were as gods, independent and self-sufficient, infallible in their knowledge of good and evil, and therefore fit to be oracles, irresistible in their power, and therefore fit to be lawgivers that could prevail with their tongues, and like God himself speak, and it is done. The wicked think they are God. They think they can speak reality into existence. They think that their lips and tongues are their own, but they forget that God made their mouths. Their rebellion is an outworking of what Paul tells us at the end of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is a part of the downward death spiral of sin. Look at how many of the sins Paul lists here have to do with the tongue, with what people who are in total rebellion against God do with their lips. Verse 28 of Romans 1, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's not only that they do these things, their rebellion goes further to giving approval to praising one another for how good they are at rebelling. This first half of, of this psalm paints a bleak picture. But all is not lost. God is on his throne and he will act. He will save his people. Verse 5 says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. This is David's hope, that the Lord is moved by the cries of his people. He hears their cries and he knows. We know this from Exodus 2, when God heard the cry of his enslaved people suffering under the lash of Pharaoh. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Here in Psalm 12, God says that he will arise, he will act. Notice why. God says, I will arise because the poor are plundered and the needy groan. Who is hurt most by the scheming and lying and flattery of the world and the wicked? especially when they were the ones who were supposed to be leading the nation. Who is hurt most? It is the poor. It is the needy who are hurt most. It is always the weak and who are hurt first and most when leaders are determined to be their own masters. 
Think about all the godless isms of the last hundred years and who was hurt most. Nearly a hundred million people in the last hundred years have died from hunger and disease or extermination under communism. Over 60 million babies have been murdered in the last 50 years in the U.S. alone under the ideology of feminism and sexual liberation. Countless millions have been hurt by the ideology of total freedom of the self that I'm going to call selfism. The, idea, the ideology that I will do what I want, when I want, how I want, and no one can tell me what to do. This has led to broken marriages and homes and bodies. Children are being told that they must define themselves outside of what God has given them in their bodies, which has led to all kinds of confusion and abuse. But God will not leave the poor and needy who call out to him alone. He will move to rescue him. Not because they deserve it, but because they can more easily see their need for rescue, their need of him. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. The poor and weak are not inherently more better or more, or more better. They are not inherently better or more righteous than the rich and powerful, but they are in a position that allows them to see their spiritual poverty, their spiritual weaknesses more clearly, and thus to cry out for rescue. They are able to see themselves as poor in spirit and as one mourning for their sin. The Lord has promised to rescue all who call on him, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus told the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And for it is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God will cut off all the flattering lips of the wicked. He will stop their tongues. He will rescue his people. But if you will not call out to him, if you will not come to Jesus, you are not one of his people. You will be lost not saved. You will be cut off, not rescued. If you continue in your sin and rebellion and think that you can cause things to happen because you speak them into being, you will continue in the downward death spiral of sin we saw earlier. Because even as you do these things in opposition to God, you are reaping both the harvest of sin and planting the seed of even more. In this downward spiral of judgment, which is sin leading to, to more judgment and more judgment leading to more sin, all of it storing up wrath for the day of, to come when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is a hopeless cycle, and the only way out is repentance. The only way forward is to trust in Christ. The only way to, is to call out to the gracious God who takes rebellious sinners by the heart and gives them a transplant, removing their hearts of stone and giving them hearts of flesh that beat now for him. It is only with this new heart that we can now trust in him. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves and turn to Christ that we find that we can. It is only when we remember that we are but poor and weak men in need of mercy, when we are reminded that God is the righteous and just and ruling God, that we are humbled enough to come to him for mercy. It is only when we shut our rebellious mouths and surrender unconditionally that we will be saved. But when we are saved, we are saved all the way. God does nothing by half measures. Those he saves, he saves to the uttermost. And this is more true than we can possibly hope. God will do justice. He will avenge his people. He will hear and remember the cry of the afflicted. We might not see it in our lives or in our timing, but justice will be done. This is why we pray, because God has promised to hear us. Calvin says, Let us therefore remember that God has promised his assistance to us. 
not in the way of preventing our afflictions, but at length giving aid to us after we have been long subdued under the cross. David speaks of hope or expectation, thereby to encourage us to prayer. The reason why God seems to take no notice of our afflictions is because he would have us to awaken to him by means of our prayers. For when he hears our requests, he stretches forth his powerful hand to help us. This is more true than we can even begin to hope. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is truth. Verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. All of David's and our hope for rescue is found in the fact that God's word is true. The Lord's words, the Lord's perfect words, give us a radical contrast to the profane words of the arrogant sinners. The purity of God's person assures us of the purity of his promises. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In this war of words, God wins. He wins because his words are true and lasting and solid and pure. If God's words are like pure silver, the words of the wicked are like smoke. There's nothing to them. Not only can they not be trusted, they don't last. They don't even last long enough to be tested. In contrast, the more God's words are tested, the truer they prove to be. Though men are false, God is faithful. Though they are not to be trusted, God is. They lie and boast and deceive and flatter, but the words of the Lord are pure words. Not only all true, but all pure, like silver refined in the hottest furnace possible. The more they are tested, the more they prove to be true. This truth is what we have to turn to when we are tempted to think that God has forgotten us. When, our when God's timing is not our timing and we are tempted to question his goodness or faithfulness. When we've been struggling with sin in our own lives or, or are affected by the sin in the lives of others we are, and we are tempted to distrust what we believe when times are easier. We must turn to these words. God's words are pure words. When we are under persecution or suffering or feel as though we are the only faithful one left and are tempted to turn elsewhere for help and comfort, we must immediately remember that the words of the Lord are pure. They can be trusted and God will keep his promises. We should believe this because he has said so, but he has not only left us with that, he has given us so much more in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see all of God's promises fulfilled. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. In Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, we see the deliverer. In Jesus, we see the grace and rescue that God has promised his people. The one who will rescue his people from the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil. We learn about Jesus, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on, heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We learn about him in the Bible. The Bible is the only source we have that can teach us about who God is and what he has done that is totally true and without error. There are many helpful books that have been written to help us understand God and his gospel and its implications, but those books are only as true as they, as they are only as true as they are faithful to the truth and the meaning of the text of scripture. Since the garden in this war of words the word of God has been under attack. The the serpent's question did God actually say has been repeated on and expanded on down through the ages. Even in the most recent reiteration of our day, the Bible has held 
true. The Bible is the Word of God, inspired and without error. It does not merely contain God's Word. It is God's Word. The Bible is not man speaking about God. It is God speaking to man authoritatively. That doesn't mean that man has always at every point understood it correctly. But our misunderstanding is a result of our own sin and weakness, not God's truthfulness. Spurgeon said the Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution and literary criticism and philosophic doubt and scientific discovery and has lost nothing but those human in interpretations which clung, to its alloy, it's clung as alloy to its precious ore. The experience of the saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. The word of the Lord holds true, and he will rescue his people. Most importantly, from our sins, but also in his own time from our troubles, either in this life or the next. Psalm 12, verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. As David meditates here on the word of the Lord and his character, the problems caused by the wicked fade. They're not gone, but the volume is turned way down. He remembers that God will guard his people, and even in the midst of the evil ones, he is worthy of trust. Regardless of the circumstances of life, God's children are guaranteed the special protection of their heavenly Father from the evil in the world in which they live. The, the wicked may turn the world upside down, but God will guard his people. The Lord will fulfill the blessing of Aaron to his people. Where he says in, in Numbers 6, the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord will lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Even in the midst of a wicked and evil generation, God will be faithful. Notice at the end of the psalm in, in verse 8, the physical situation remains largely unchanged. The wicked still prowl on every side, and vileness is still exalted in the world. But David is not without hope. The Lord will guard his generation, his people, for as long as the wicked prowl. Evil and rebellion are not new, and the revolt of the wicked will not end fully and finally until Christ returns, but until then, God will keep his own. He will protect his people. It may not be physically, but he will, by his spirit, enable his people to be faithful to the end. He will protect his people from being drawn away by the evil plans of the wicked. He will keep his people from falling away into sin without repentance. He will keep his people from being uprooted and destroyed. He will keep his people from making shipwreck of their faith. And he will do this primarily by his word. He keeps his people by strengthening their faith as they read his word and sing his word and pray his word and hear his word preached. He does this because he loves his people. He loves to save sinners. He loves to take dead people and make them live. Even in the midst of a wicked and evil generation, God saves sinners. For his own glory. And because he does this, because he saves us, we must do more than simply refrain from lying. We must love the truth. We must love and study his revealed word. We must do more than not deceive. We, we must rely on God's word and stand on his firm foundation. We must do more than not flatter. We must tell people of their need of a savior. We must do more than not boast in ourselves. We must realize that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that every word you have given can be trusted, that we don't have to feel our way toward you or your will, but you have given it to us in a book. Thank you that you have not only given us this book, you have sent your spirit to help us understand. We pray that we would trust you more, especially in these evil days. Help us to walk not as the unwise who rebel against you, but as the wise seeking after you in your word. Lord, we ask that you would keep us, your people, and guard us. Keep us from falling away and draw us closer to yourself. Help us by your spirit to be faithful. Help us live filled with the spirit, always giving thanks for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.